Wade. I'm Sarah Osteen, and this is a podcast where I interview experts in different arenas and industries on their experiences and perspectives on influence and power. And today, I'm really lucky to be speaking with Chris Marchetti, who is the acting mogul head coach at Park City Ski and Snowboard. He also founded the Park City Freestyle Foundation in 2005, I think. Um, he is also a, one of my husband's oldest friends in the world, and we could probably spend the next half hour um, telling terrible stories about your life together. But uh, today we're going to be primarily focusing on on the influences on skiers and uh, what it what it looks like for skiers who kind of rise above above the rest. So, so welcome, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad that you're here. Um, so I wanted to just kind of start off by hearing a little bit more about you and your life uh, as it relates specifically to, to skiing, because you were, you are a, a badass skier and in the 90s spent some time on the U.S. ski team. And so uh, we know when you kind of look back on that, what were some of the biggest influences on you and, and your ski career? I realize it's a broad question, but you can you can take that however you want. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, you know, for me, I played a lot of sports kind of growing up and through high school, and I'm definitely a sports enthusiast. I love sports. And I would say in today's world, I think they're even more valuable where we're in such a technological, um, fast moving place where everything is immediate with the internet and Facebook and all of these things. I think a lot of communication and, you know, life lessons we learn, sport is a very good way to teach them. So I've always been a fan of sport and now I'm probably even more so a fan of sport than I used to be. And I think it's very important for society. That being said, for me specifically, um, I think what drew me into skiing was that I was, you know, very undersized. So, you know, kind of keeping up with the, the big boys was always a little bit difficult in your, you know, more mainstream sports and also the opportunity to travel. And so it was a sport that I, where I was small, you know, having where freestyle skiing involves a lot of acrobatics and quick movements. I was very good at that. And, um, the opportunity to travel and the friendships you built were, you know, very fun. And I would suggest to anybody that if they have the opportunity to spend four or five years as a young adult skiing the world and getting paid for it, they should do that. I think it's pretty fun. Yeah. So those were some of the motivators is like, there's an uh, aptitude towards it and there's some great benefits of, of doing it. Yeah. And I, and you know, and for me having played a lot of team sports and individual sports, although I liked, I liked the camaraderie and the teamwork and the life lessons of team sports better. I think in an individual sport, which skiing is, you learn a lot more about yourself because at the end of the day, when you, you know, you really get down to the core of it, if you can ever get there, there's never going to be anybody, anybody to blame but yourself. So you, you can really learn a lot about accountability and integrity. And I always like that too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So are there some coaches that stand out to you in terms of how effective or ineffective they were in terms of getting you up to the next level? I know you went to a high school at one point that was specifically, you know, a ski school. When you kind of look back over the course of your career, were there some that stood out or maybe stood out for bad reasons? <laughs> Uh, there were definitely a few, yeah, both both ways, and I'd be happy to elaborate on that. But certainly, 
going back to the time of the mid-90s on the positive side, uh, Glenn Eddy and Joan McWilliams from Carabasset Valley Academy and who used to work with the USD team as well, you know, those were absolutely my two favorite. I would say they were my two most positive coaching experiences. And although the head coach of the US scheme at that US ski team at that point in time was a guy named Wayne Hiltebrand, and he was notorious for being difficult to get along with. And I think certainly I can understand why, and his behavior was somewhat erratic and things. And where I was not one of the good guys on the the U.S. ski team, my involvement with him was very little as he was the head coach and primarily dealing with the Olympic level team and all of that. I really enjoyed him mainly because he was so direct. There was never, again, as, as I said, he could be a little volatile and erratic, but he, there was never a way to misconstrue his message. <laughs> it was very straightforward. It was very cut and dry. And if, if you couldn't understand what he was communicating to you, that was definitely on you. And I always appreciated that. And I know that 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 style may not be for everybody, but I really like that. Yeah. And do you think you've embodied some of that? I think so, for sure. I don't think there's a lot of people or athletes nowadays that coached or influenced that would tell you they often misunderstood me. I yeah. don't think that happens very often. Crystal clear. Yeah. Um, I think they would say I can be a little, you know, aggressive or overbearing or even a bit of an asshole sometimes. And I'm willing to certainly accept that as criticism and accept some of it as true as long as, you know, we get the job done. Yeah. So that makes sense. Um, and then what about the the flip side? Did, did, were there people who demotivated you or who sort of turned you off from it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know that it's totally appropriate to... You don't have to say names, but more no, more, more about their, their style. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we had, I had a coach sort of at um, a ski academy back east that, you know, I felt his emphasis was really, in my opinion, he was there to make friends more so than he was to coach anybody. And I think he viewed life as a popularity contest. And I always viewed him as a very insecure person. And, you know, I think for the most part, a lot of people liked him. I personally never did. That's not my style of thing. But um, achieving results with him was extremely difficult. And he was not a hard worker. He was someone that would very much lobby for personal opinion and things like that, as opposed to getting the job done. And I would say back in those days of Ski Academy, he was probably our most popular coach and I couldn't stand the guy. Mm. Ironically, which no one could ever seem to figure out at that time. But, you know, I think when you're dealing with 14 to 17 year old athletes, their assessment of the world isn't always totally accurate either. They, as soon as they got out of there, their careers seemed to flourish. And of course he would take credit for that, that he was the building block. And I always saw that a very different way that he just, he was in the way. I actually wouldn't even work with him. I, I was just like, you know, look, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to fight with anybody. But I went to a couple of the other coaches and, and him. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm here to get work done. This is what I want to do. And this guy's in my way. So forget about it. And that was probably my worst coaching experience. Ironically, I will say uh, later, uh, a couple of years after I left, he was arrested for some very serious charges. And so I would still... Um, you feel stand. vindicated. I would still stand. I felt vindicated. It was actually, I don't know if this is relevant, but it was certainly an issue when I was in high school and my parents were very upset with me that I couldn't get along with anybody and be part of the team. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just not doing it with this guy. And when all of his charges came out and he was uh, proven guilty, 
my parents called and were like, can you believe this? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to say I ever knew the guy was a criminal per se, but I would say this, that like if somebody that's 17 years old that doesn't really know any better is willing to absolutely go to bat and not do it, you should probably listen to them. Because mm. I think the bigger issue here is that everybody sort of overlooked, I think, a lot of the things that were going on because of the popularity contest. But as someone myself who doesn't win a lot of popularity contests and as someone and, and quite frankly, is not particularly interested in them. That was a, for me, a very horrible situation. And at a young age, that was tough because, you know, you get bring it, you get brought into the dean's office, you get bring it, brought into the headmaster's office, academic advisors, you know, athletic advisors, the athletic director. And there was never, as I said, anything particular, like any one circumstance that happened to me. I just absolutely didn't like him. I didn't trust him. And from what I could tell, there were absolutely no results that were linked to what he was doing. So. I mean, was that ultimately, it was de- he was demotivating because you didn't trust him? Yeah, I think trust was a lot of it. And I think the emphasis, I think when you show up to a practice or a training camp or whatever it may be, whatever arena you're playing in, so to speak, I think the emphasis has to be on getting better. And, there, and there's a lot of ways to do that, you know, you could be better at getting better at communication. You could be getting better at your specific sport or an aspect of your specific sport. You could be getting better at, you know, pushing yourself with a little more work ethic, but you've got to be moving forward. And I just found with him, I could never attribute any aspect to moving forward. It was always like, I don't know, just a popularity contest. Like let's like boost my ego and Mm. stroke my personality and, you know, I, I can remember just saying, <laughs> like, when when's the work going to get done? <laughs> like, when do we work? And, you know, I, I mean, I think everybody has strengths and weaknesses, and I certainly do. And part of that is you see the world through your own eyes. So this is me telling the story. But that was always, you know, I think for as challenging and difficult as I can sometimes be as a person, I do like to work. And yeah. the whole idea that we were kind of never working really irked me. And yeah. Does that you know, attack the work ethic or compromise the practice or detract from trust? I think, in my opinion, it does all of those things. Right. And so that was a very challenging and non-likable experience for me. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting entree into sort of your coaching style uh, because the little that I, I know of it, like you do a really nice job of kind of balancing the students' needs particularly to develop, but also to have fun. I mean, you, you were visiting us recently and you talked about how you guys like went, I don't know, blackberry picking or something yeah. um, as you, when you were at a camp. So I guess I'd love to just hear a little bit more about how you motivate your skiers. Um, well, it's, I think that's a good question and I probably am not going to give you an answer that you love. Um, <laughs> I've, when I assess myself, I've never considered myself to be a great motivator. I think I am someone, if you come to me with motivation, I am someone who can absolutely help you get to the next level and sort of teach you them some things and some strategies and all of that. But I, if I were to self-evaluate, I would say I'm not a, a big motivator, but I would say that it, my motivational tool is that I am a big person on analogies and bringing into you know, life perspective and understanding where what we're learning and what we're doing is so much bigger than skiing down a mogul course. And that 
inevitably you are going to forget the, the particular results that you had at a particular place or whether you really liked skiing in Quebec or not, or, you know, did you make finals on this day or not? Like you will forget that stuff. And mm-hmm. unless you would just have, you know, a photographic memory of some sort, but what you won't forget is the lessons in communication that you learned and hard work and the confidence you build from achieving goals and lifelong lessons in that will hopefully ultimately make you a better parent, a better employer, an employee, a spouse, you know, whatever you're going to be. And and that's really the stuff that matters. And I think when people really choose to listen to that, I think that is a very important message and I think it is motivating. So I would say that's probably the most motivational thing that I do. Yeah. You're like coaching the whole person, right? And recognizing that these also are, are kids and they're at a developmental point in their lives and uh, you're responsible for more than just teaching them how to make the perfect mogul turn. Well, we inevitably, I think so. I mean, we spend a lot of time together in our sport. It's not like, you know, high school and little league, which almost everybody's familiar with, but we travel the world together. So, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, I'm going to coach a ski camp in this fall and I'm going for 27 days with four fist level athletes that will hopefully be qualifying for the U.S. ski team this year. And we'll be living in the same house. We will be going to the gym together. We will be eating meals together. We will be on the hill training together. I mean, and when you're doing that, I mean, that effectively becomes family in my mind. Mm-hmm. And that's not to belittle someone's family or make a judgment that way, but it becomes very important if you're in those circumstances that everybody's on the same page, everybody's working together, everybody understands that someone may be a little more social and someone may be a little more reclusive and somebody doesn't like spicy food and somebody likes to sleep late on a day off and, you know, just things that you really learn in a lot of times in a family network because you learn all of that. And I would even go a step further, which is probably irrelevant, but if I ever start dating a girl seriously, you know, I always say, ask the kids on the ski team because they, they, at this point in time, probably know more about me than anybody because two weeks ago, they lived in a house with me for 30 days <laughs> right. and they, they know how much I go to the gym, how much I talk on the phone, what I do on my computer, how much I like to sleep, what I like to eat. You know, my family doesn't even know that anymore. Yeah. If you, if you ask my mother, she couldn't answer a single one of those questions. Right. And it's that's not meant to belittle my relationship with my mother, but you spend a lot of time with these kids. And they certainly know what aggravates me because, of course, when they're not doing what they need to be doing, in my opinion, they I'm not shy on giving them an earful. Yeah. Well, so you're talking about specifics about each kid. So how do you figure out how to motivate each individual skier because they do have varying needs, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, I was a psychology major and I'm a big believer that when you look at sports and even business as a whole, everybody like in business, if someone's, you know, not great with technology or computers, it's very easy to send them to a small IT school or a spreadsheet class or anything like that. And it's very easy to take someone, if someone's not strong, it's very easy to take them to a weight room and, you know, all these things. But the much bigger picture is if you can't get your mind to get your body to do what you need it to do, what do you do? So I would say, Absolutely, there is an emphasis on psychology and sort of finding individually what it takes to motivate each athlete and also get them to perform. I think you and I were speaking the other night and we talked about, 
you know, I have one girl on my team now who's near and dear to my heart. And she is someone who puts the weight of the world on herself and just can almost turn any positive experience into a negative one and, and can really suck the fun out of anything. The, which, you know, the great thing is she's very diligent. She's very um, methodical in her approach. She is very rational. Um, she's extremely hardworking. And these are all good things, but I think the end result is she puts a ton of pressure on herself and sort of forgets to have fun and let loose a little bit. And now as she gets prepared to ski on a given competition day, all we do is tell dirty jokes and make fun of each other and trying to almost take her out of her own mind. Whereas we have other athletes that are, you know, constantly need focus. I mean, they, they, you, you have to constantly remind them and whether that's, you know, maybe a little bit of mild ADHD or you know, just the, the mind of a 20 year old, you know, I don't know, but you know, it's a constant, like we're even writing them notes and putting it in their backpack. So, you know, every time they open it up, you know, remember this, remember this. And so everyone's got a different approach and sort of what they need, but I think it takes a lot of time individually learning that with each person and getting them to open up and communicate so that they can also ultimately you can hopefully get them what they need to accomplish their goals. Yeah. I mean, you, in our previous discussion, we're sort of talking about how like some kids need like the fist pump, chest pump type of almost angry uh, setup at the gate versus someone else who you're describing really needs that really lighthearted touch, right? Absolutely. You know, again, like there's some kids that we compete and train with it, you see them getting ready to make their run and you, you really, you're like, where's their football equipment? Like, like, you know, they're foaming at the mouth, chest bumps, fist bumps, the whole thing. And they look like they're getting ready for a wrestling match or football a lot more so than they are getting ready to ski down a mogul course. And there are other kids that are extremely serene and independent and just want to be left alone and sort of get into their headspace. And they're, you know, as I said, this particular girl, there's some people that just kind of put their weight of the world on themselves and need to be almost taken out of their mind a little bit because their mind just sort of, I think, takes over a little bit, but kind of in a negative way sometimes. It's too regimented. You got to let it go a little bit sometimes. Yes. Um, I, I did Google you before we talk, talked as well, and there's an article in the, the parkrecord.com that features a kind of creepy picture of you with this, uh, a mustache. <laughs> I don't think that's creepy. I think that's just dead sexy, but yeah. <laughs> it's phenomenal. But the skier mentioned, talks about, I don't know if this is the woman that you're referring to, but she talked about how she needed to kind of lighten things up and um, and that made a big difference for her. It absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, I think giving, you know, in, in a little background there, the, the year, she, she's a very talented skier and a great kid and um, the year, year before she was having a, a, a horrendous time and really crashing all over the place and obviously crashing in mogul courses hurts, not only physically, but psychologically. And she was just miserable and she wasn't fun to travel with. And she was quite frankly, bringing the team down a little bit and beating the hell out of herself. And she had really kind of come to me halfway through the season and said, I think this is going to be my last season. Oh. You know, I did this. I can't do this, you know, physically, mentally, the whole thing. And I'm like, Hey, everybody has their time. And if this is your time, I get it. And I was like, I would, I would say, you know, I have two pieces of advice for you. Number one, you can't really contemplate retirement in the middle of the season. You got to keep your poise and keep your focus and get down the course. You can't be in the middle of a mogul course upside down, 30 feet in the air saying, I can't wait to be retired. That doesn't really work. You need a level of focus. And 
number two, if this is it, you may like, let's just have some fun. And, uh, you know, at that point, and because we were basically contemplating retirement or she was, it, it became much more of a lighthearted affair and almost like joking. And she had a couple of good training days where we didn't even really talk about skiing. We were just like goofing around and who you dating and just stupid stuff. And, you know, and I, and I just sort of got to thinking and I'm like, well, I wonder if there's something to this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the next day we were kind of getting ready for a competition and I basically spent the whole time kind of making fun of her, just like stupid little silly jokes, like your clothes don't fit right and your your helmet makes you look ugly and stupid stuff like that, okay. you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. But like joking, I mean, obviously very joking and, and she knew that and we were just laughing and she would say the same thing, you know, like she'd come down and be like, Hey, your jacket makes you look fat. And, <laughs> and it was just like super lighthearted, silly stuff. And again, she had a very good day and I'm like, huh, I wonder if there's something to this. And so the next day is competition day and we're up there. And at that point where she was basically almost retired, she becomes a lab rat and you can basically do whatever you want. And, you know, we're up at the start and she was getting ready to go. And I'm like, tell me a dirty joke. And I don't know one. And, you know, I recite a couple, which obviously are probably not appropriate for this, for this podcast. And we go back and forth and we're like laughing hysterically inappropriately, of course. And she, they're like, okay, it's time, your time to go. And all of a sudden she did a great run and she actually won. It's her first ever international win. And then I sat down with her that night and I was like, Hey, just so you know, like the last week, all we've been doing and screwing around and telling dirty jokes and making fun of each other, kind of like a brother or sister would. And like, you think that maybe there's something to this? Like maybe if you're a little lighter and not putting all this pressure on yourself and just giggling and whatever, that maybe you're, you can do this. And we went with that for the year and she had a great year and she's like, I'm back. And since then we absolutely have sort of personal jokes that we always tell on competition days. And it is absolutely important that she shows us a real smile on a competition day and not like smile and they give you the little fake cheesy one, but like a real big one. And, uh, mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you know, now she's one of the top competitors in the United States. Whereas two years ago, she was tumbling down mogul courses, ready to retire. And again, I think that that's the, I'm certainly not suggesting that everyone who competes in a sport needs to know dirty jokes, but you know, I am suggesting that psychologically, I think there are a lot of people that just put just too much pressure on themselves and think entirely too much. And if you can sort of get them out of that to a more relaxed humorous, entertaining state, they can perform at a higher level. Yeah. It seems to work for her. Yeah. And conversely, you know, there's a lot of people that if you start telling dirty jokes or being disruptive or distracting, like they are distracted and they will absolutely crash and fall down. And those are generally, you know, a lot of times those are people that absolutely need to be laser focused, completely aggressive, adrenaline junkie style. And that's probably a little more common than someone that needs to laugh all the time. Yeah, I would say everybody's different. And I think any good coach will tell you that the psychological component is important important, and that everybody's different, but it's important to find that. And no different than any other sport, you know, when you look at like physical conditioning, which is obviously such a big part of what every sport does now. And the thing with that, you know, some people need to really go into the gym to work on speed. And some people really need to go into the gym to work on endurance. And some people really need to go into the gym to work on flexibility. And some people really need to go work on strength. And that's very easily defined, but I don't think the psychology and the motivation and 
the determination is any different. It's just a lot harder to pinpoint because we can't, as far as I know, we can't get inside anyone's skull and examine their brain and figure out exactly what they need. Yeah, no, it's so true, but it sounds like you do such a nice job of figuring out what, uh, you know, how to connect individually, which is pretty cool. When when you look back on your coaching career, are there any examples of skiers that you wish you could have influenced them differently? Not necessarily better, but, but differently. Absolutely. I have uh, two particular, and when they come to our program and they get into sort of a FIS international type program, like we run, they all do it because they want to make the U S ski team, but sometimes you you know, some of them aren't going to make that. Mm -hmm. And, but I can think of one man and one woman over the last decade that physically absolutely without question had the talent to do that. And the, you know, the way they skied, the way they were in the weight room, the way they jumped, the way they played other sports, just tremendous athletes. But to make the U S ski team, you can't just be good one or two days. You have to be good for an, an entire season. And they could never do that. You know, they posted results, you know, one good day here and then three bad ones and then another good one and then three bad ones. And I would say psychologically, I could just never get them over the hump. And absolutely, they, if I could say there's a regret, I'm not someone who believes hugely in regrets, but it would be not being able to get through to those two and being able to help them achieve their goals and get them to that higher place because we just never could do it. So I could never do it. No, I I get it. And and maybe it was impossible or where they were in their point in time that that wasn't going to happen. But is there anything that as a coach you can do to kind of figure out better what an individual skier needs? I think it comes to communication. I mean, I think you have to be open with them. And one thing I've learned over the years is something I always say is communication is a two-way street. And I think, you know, in a coach athlete in today's world, it is, I think sometimes deemed inappropriate to tell athletes something about yourself or whatever, but I've, I've never viewed it that way. And I think when you talk about the trust and the open communication skills, I think it's very important that communication is a two-way street and that you tell them things about yourself as well, whether it's about your career or your family or where you're from or whatever it is. But I've always been completely open with my athletes and I think that has reaped benefits. And I would say certainly some people would look at some of the conversations we've had and say that's inappropriate and I certainly would understand why, but I also would rebuttal that with, I'm living in a house with these kids for a month at a time. What is it that I'm going to hide from them? I'm, you know, I'm not implying like you walk around the house naked or something, but when you live with someone, there's not a lot you can hide. You know, if you've got a girlfriend or whatever, they know because you're talking on the phone to them or you're on the computer with them, or maybe you're taking a weekend off to visit them. Or if you're maybe taking a couple of extra online classes to pursue some more educational goals, they know, they see you on your computer. Or again, if you like to sleep late on the off days, you know, they know. And if, you know, again, like you don't like spicy food, they know you eat dinner with them every night. They know like, what is it you're going to hide from them? So I've always just been... I've taken the approach that if you're going to find out something about me, it's because I tell you. Right. I just assume if you're going to make it a judgment or an assessment on me, I'd rather have it be the information that I give you. So I've been extremely transparent with them and extremely open with them. And I believe that that's reaped benefits because I said, especially in a sport like ours where injury rates are high, there's a lot of trust. And I think you have to build trust both ways. Yeah. I don't think 
trust is a one-way thing. Like, okay, you trust me, but I'm not going to tell you anything. I don't think that's the way that works, is my opinion. Right. Yeah, no, you have to give up a little bit of yourself, too. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you walk a fine line as a coach, but if there's a big group, obviously, I have to focus on coaching. But if there's a smaller group, and and they're doing activities such as skiing or playing a sport or hiking or going to the gym, it's, it's very common that I will be doing that activity with them and certainly shedding some insights and doing some coaching along the way. But I would say primarily being involved in the, the activity. And I think, again, that's sharing experience and that builds trust. And I always say that the weight room is an extremely important place to build trust because obviously I'm 44, I'll be 45 soon. I'm not going to keep up with a 20-year-old U.S. ski team athlete. And they're stronger than me and more fit and they should be. But at the end of the day, the work everybody does in the weight room and certainly the soreness they feel the next day is exactly the same for a 15-year-old, a 25-year-old, 35-year-old, 45-year-old, 55-year-old. And and I think, you know, when you go to the lowest common denominator, that that that's a bonding experience because it's the great equalizer. Right. The way we feel the next day. And although our output may not have been the same and our goals may not be the same, but after a big workout, the way every single person on that team feels is exactly the same. And when they're, they wake up and they're like, oh my God, like my hamstrings right underneath my butt and the insertion point in my lower back is killing me. And it's like hard to sit, stand up and sit down. I know exactly what they mean because I feel the same way. Yeah. And if I say it or they say it or whomever says it, every single one of us knows exactly what the other person means because probably they feel that way right now, but they've certainly felt it before. And I think that's something that can very much open lines of communication because it's sort of a universal intangible, if that makes sense. Like, you know, my version of honest versus your version of honest versus someone else's may differ from person to person. The the difference between the way someone feels pain in their lower butt, upper hamstring area Yes, maybe one person is more sore than the other or has a, a, a higher threshold for pain. But when you talk about that, everybody knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Everybody knows. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. You played sports in high school. You've been to a weight room. And, you know, whenever you, you overdo it on the squats or the hamstrings or whatever it is, and the next day you're like, oh, my word. Uh-huh. Like, oh. Why is it when I go to the bathroom that my hamstrings are yelling at me? Yeah. You know. Like, so, do you actually do the same workouts that they do? I do. Uh, I do a toned down version. Yeah. I, you know, I don't like. You know what I what I would say is we modify all the time. Uh-huh. So, if you think we we just had one of our fist level athletes who did athletic testing the other day, and he squatted three hundred and seventy five pounds clean, which is a very high squat. I was very proud of him, and I hope he's proud of himself. But if you're asking if I go in and squat 375 pounds, no, I do not do that. If you're asking if I, you know, get in the squat rack next to him and do similar reps and, you know, similar form. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're still Um, crushing it out there. I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) And certainly the only thing that would be crushed if I got under 375 pound squat would be me. So (laughs) I'm not, the days of that are long gone. (laughs) Well, um, speaking of, of, of days of yore. I know that you are good friends with Johnny Mosley and spent some time on the U.S. ski team with him, as well as some yes. other well-known, um, very successful uh, skiers or freestyle skiers. 
you know, when you think about Johnny as, or, or others, what motivated him? Like, how did he kind of manage to float above the rest? Obviously, there's this very high skill level, but I'm guessing that there's other stuff too. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Johnny's a good friend of mine and I did live with him for a couple of years and we were on the team together at the same point in time. I mean, he was certainly the best guy on the team and I was certainly the worst guy on the team. So to say we were always at the same competitions or at the same level would absolutely not be true. Nobody, I hope nobody misconstrues that. But, um, you know, one thing was his work ethic. I I think it was, I think it would be very hard pressed to outwork Johnny Mosley. I, I can think back to on and off the the hill stories where I could tell you hundreds of them where, you know, he was just always pushing and working, always working. Yeah. And I think he he was certainly the best competitor I've ever seen. He next to never made a mistake when the pressure was on. And I'm sure that aided him in his gold medal. But I, I think also he had a tremendous ability to intrinsically evaluate things. And I don't think he was tremendously concerned with the outside world. He was concerned with what he could do or what he thought he could do. And I would consider him a very intrinsically motivated person. And I think he absolutely used that to his advantage. You know, and he he was just not concerned with what people thought or what people thought he could or could not do. And he often told me a story, which I probably shouldn't be sharing, but I will anyways. And God, what year was that? 94. And that was basically his rookie year on the World Cup tour of the ski team. And I don't want to be telling Johnny Mosley stories and misquoting, but I so consider 80% 80 of what I can say is true. But, you know, he told me a story as a friend, which when he sort of did his first World Cup tour, which I believe was 1994, he was coming in as a rookie and he sort of went on rookie expectations and he ended up just missing the Olympics. And he was pretty aggravated because he had really felt that he bought into sort of the rookie first year standards. And if he had looked at that a different way, he would have absolutely made the Olympics in 94 and whether, and that's sort of the nuts and bolts of the story. And, you know, whether that's true or not, there's no way to look back and know, but I think that, and maybe he even made all that up in his head, but the truth of the matter is I think that motivated him for a very long period of time. And where over the next decade, he showed a ton of success. So whether he made it up in his head or whether it was true or not true, or whether someone has a different opinion of that, it doesn't really matter because if you, if you believe it, it's true. And if it's motivating to you and you can then go on to post the results that he did as a world cup overall champion, a world champion, an Olympic gold medalist, it doesn't matter. The results speak for themselves. Yeah. Was, was 2002 his last Olympics? Yeah, 98 was when he won gold in Japan, and then 92 was when he got fourth in Salt Lake City, Utah. Right. And ironically speaking to that point, although he's remembered famously as a mogul and freestyle skier and TV personality, but when you look to the world of skiing in Salt Lake, he did a what he called at the time a dinner roll, which is effectively a D-spin now. Um, but he was the first person to really push off-axis and inverted tricks. And he ultimately set the stage and what I would say changed the sport forever. I think when you look back at what Johnny Mosley taught us and what he gave back to the sport and the community and the world, I think in a way he sort of gave us mogul skiing what it is today. Yeah. And I think that goes back to his belief. I mean, he at the Olympics where he quite frankly could have, 
I, I would misstate this or whatever, but in my opinion, if you if the goal was really to get a podium, and not that his goal wasn't to get a podium, I think he could have done that. But I think his goal was truly to prove a bigger stage and a bigger platform and show people that the sport could be done a little better and a little differently. That's not to say he didn't want to win a medal. I think, of course, he did. But I think there were some other goals and motivations in there. And again, I don't want to speak for Johnny Mosley. That's just my interpretation of it. No, I think that's a really powerful statement. He got fourth in the Olympics, possibly because he tried something new. Is that fair to say? In my opinion, yes. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. yeah. And then do you think he felt like that was winning? Yeah. I mean, I think if you talk to Johnny now, at least in my opinion, he is someone who, you know, again, and I want to be sure that everyone understands that this is opinion and not fact, of course, mm -hmm. but in my opinion, he is someone who does a tremendous job of living in the moment and being present where he is. And, and I think there's a lot to learn from that, but I don't, I would be very surprised if you could say that he regretted any of the 2002 Olympics or going into it or any of that stuff, because I think what was important to him was sort of, and it's not, again, not to say he didn't want to win because he did, he was very competitive, but I think there were other motivators there. And I think doing it his way and sending a certain message was very important to him. And I think hindsight 2020, but almost 20 years later, I would say he sent that message loud and clear. And I would assume, although I've never specifically asked him that that's something he's proud of. And in my opinion, it's something he should be proud yeah. of. Yeah. He's sort of the epitome of intrinsic motivation. In my opinion, yeah. he is. Yeah. Really cool. Well, um, I want to leave it there. Uh, there's probably a million other stories that you could tell and other paths we could go down. But um, Chris, I just want to say thank you so much. You're awesome. And uh, we miss you up here. So come back and visit us in Seattle. Thanks for doing this. No worries. Thanks for doing it. If you want to you know, do it again or speak about some more stuff, I'm happy to help out. Awesome. 